Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Washington Roundtable. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Congress averted a government shutdown with another continuing resolution. The world waits for GOP lawmakers to approve additional Ukraine aid. Two weeks after his killing, Alexei Navalny is laid to rest and the Western alliance is cracking. Emmanuel Macron's proposal to send troops to Ukraine prompts Russia to again threaten nuclear attack, worrying Washington and prompting Olaf Scholz to deny cruise missiles for Kiev and accuse France and Britain of escalation. But the EU president is suggesting tapping frozen Russian assets to arm and rebuild Ukraine. Australian intelligence says a former parliamentarian worked for Beijing and another bloody week in Gaza as Israel starves Gaza, steps up operations in the West Bank, and even considers an offensive against Lebanon. Joining us today to review all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson, the President of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security and a co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the Transatlantic Alliance, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome back. It's a pleasure to have you on. Michael, welcome back from your uh, brief uh, hiatus as Congress was uh, out of session. Uh, Good news is that they're back. There's a last minute deal uh, that averted a government shutdown. Uh, The big four met with the president at the White House for what was characterized as a successful uh, meeting. After that meeting, a lot of stuff started to happen, including a continuing resolution, Uh, but a lot of uncertainty uh, about what uh, the final uh, budget deal will look like. And certainly all eyes are on uh, whether or not we can get a Ukraine uh, package through uh, as Ukraine um, really is starting to suffer uh, from uh, the Russian onslaught. Bring us up to speed on A, what brought us to where we are and what's next, and then what's next for the Ukraine uh, supplemental where you think, you say there's a lot of activity, right? I was going to say that it is in the, it's zombie legislation, not fully alive, not fully dead, uh, but you're saying it's somewhat more encouraging than that. So take it away. Sure. So you're right. So we did avert a shutdown. Uh, and I actually was sort of think we might have a partial government shutdown earlier this week. Uh, but yesterday, uh, the House did pass another continuing resolution, uh, overwhelmingly 320 uh, to 99, though out of the 99 people voted against it, 97 uh, were Republicans, which I still can't accept. Uh, and the Senate then passed it last night. 77 to 13, the president will uh, sign it uh, into uh, later today. Um, now, last week, while Congress is still in recess, uh, the Freedom Caucus sent uh, Speaker Johnson uh, a letter, you know, saying that, you know, complaining about negotiations continuing behind closed doors and stressing their hard fought policy provisions they want to make sure stayed in the final legislation. They listed a lot of them. I'll just mention a few that I think are especially ridiculous that they really wanted <laughs> Johnson to pull out a sword for and threaten the government shutdown, uh, one of which was reducing uh, Homeland Security Secretary uh, Mayorkas' salary to zero, uh, then also defunding uh, the World Health Organization, uh, the United Nations Human Rights Council, and the World Economic Forum, uh, of course, prohibiting funding for uh, DEI, uh, preventing any funding for the new FBI headquarters. And at the end of their letter, they pretty much say, why should we proceed when we really could pass a year-long CR with the 1% cut and save Americans uh, lots of money? So despite that, the plan was initially for congressional leaders to release the text of these four spending bills that were expiring today on Sunday night, but they were not able uh, to, to reach a deal. 
Um, and the dispute at the time was really over, uh, you know, uh, spending and policy riders, right? The, the, some of the policy riders that they were trying to keep in Republicans, but the Republicans were complaining that the Democrats were asking for some new things that were initially included. One of the new things the Democrats were asking for was an additional billion dollars to cover a shortfall in funding for WIC, which is the special supplemental nutrition program for women, infants, and children. And I'm like, really? I mean, Republicans really going to fall on the sword for that. When we're talking about $1.6 trillion in spending, this is a billion dollars in funding for hungry kids and hungry moms. But uh, this is the, the politics that we're in. Uh, and Republicans were complaining about some of the earmarks that Democrats put in, which I think equated to, in their mind, uh, some, some poison pill policy writers. So anyway, I, as you pointed out, I think the president actually uh, did a great job by leading and calling that White House meeting on Tuesday because that really got the ball rolling. Because by Wednesday, they struck a deal uh, that they would have a continuing resolution Canada this week on six appropriations bills. So instead of breaking up four and eight like they did before, now they're broken up six and six. So, and I was talking to some leadership staff last night. The six that now expire on March eighth, um, five of them are already done. So they just need to tweak uh, one more bill, and they should be able to release text uh, over the weekend uh, on that. Um, now the remaining uh, six bills they will now expire on March twenty second, and, and in the remaining six that includes the, the funding for the Pentagon. But they always lump that in with a tough one. So that includes also Homeland Security and Labor HHS and a few others. It will be tougher to negotiate, but there is a lot of optimism and confidence that they will get there. Right now, of course, after this deal is announced, you know, the Freedom Caucus again comes out swinging, saying that uh, you know, they should still force the government shutdown to secure uh, steeper cuts. And they're still continuing uh, to champion a full year CR. Um, now. Now that we're looking at March 22nd as the end of this, hopefully, and I believe it will be, that comes up against a two-week recess, right? So that means that I don't see the Republicans in the House turning their attention, if at all, to the supplemental until now the week of April 8th, right? Because they have reason not to talk about it now because they've got to focus on finishing FY24 probes. Then they're gone uh, for two weeks. Um, this was a hot topic of conversation in the White House meeting. Uh, apparently got very intense. Uh, where you know, Schumer and the other leaders really pressed Johnson to do the right thing and saying it really is in his hands. Uh, Johnson continued to push again for border policy while recognizing that um, you know Ukraine will lose the war if there is no aid. And Johnson did apparently say in the meeting, we must take care of America's needs first. And I, I just still don't understand that mantra, right? I mean, yes, I understand why the border is important, but Ukraine is important too and does satisfy America's needs to protect our freedom and our democracy. And Correct. the money in this bill uh, helps our defense industrial base, which is in desperate need of this money. Um, and you know, nearly two-thirds of the $60 billion that's allocated for Ukraine in the supplemental, uh, right. about – $38.8 billion of that would be invested in, in the defense industrial base. $20 billion of that would be allocated for purchasing new weapons and equipments to refill our depleted inventories. And about $14 billion would be spent on new weapons made by U.S. defense contractors that would be sent straight to Ukraine. And, you know, we're in a strange world, new world now. It's the Democrats that are hyping the idea of sending billions of dollars more to defense contractors to try and counter this Republican narrative that the aid package amounts to a big giveaway. And I really think we're on the cusp here of kind of a realignment where the Democrats now are emerging as the party of a strong national defense and the party of national security, and the Republicans are losing that mantle. 
I, I think it's uh, an extraordinary uh, transformation that we've been discussing uh, for, for uh, some time. By the way, of all of those riders, the only thing I totally agree with is the fact that the FBI headquarters, it, it shouldn't be moving anywhere than staying across the street from the Justice Department. The stupidity of moving it anywhere <laughs> is is just so beyond the realm of understanding. Uh, it's it's almost as stupid as moving all those offices uh, from Crystal City uh, or even in the Pentagon down to Fort Belvoir or moving all of these personnel operations from across the street uh, from the Pentagon, like you know the Navy personnel offices uh, to Tennessee. Really, really awesome. Uh, and know all, all manner of people who love spending time on the road to, to do something that ordinarily would have taken them a 20 minute walk. Um, so do you think that ultimately this happens, uh, Michael, right? Does this package pass and is it in April, you know, May? Uh, and in the meantime, what are innovative ways? Right? I mean, there was talk about a discharge petition, uh, although not a lot of stomach, even though there's a growing bipartisan group of members who are pushing it. Um, and what are some other mechanisms that folks up there are recommending the president uh, take advantage of to make it happen? And I'm going to go briefly uh, to Dove on this because he is the master of figuring out how to get things done uh, legally but efficiently in Washington. Well, you know, kind of like the debt ceiling, there's lots of options, right? But I think the realistic option at this point is the Senate bill that has been passed by the Senate and sent to the House. And that Johnson is going to have to feel the pressure to take that up because right now he's thwarting the will of the House by not putting it on the floor because if he did, it would pass overwhelmingly. Uh, so uh, I think you know Democrats are working uh, feverishly behind the scenes uh, to figure out how uh, pressure can be applied to Johnson. There's a lot of Republicans, obviously, that want to see this done. Um, you know, so I, I but and Republicans I talk to uh, who want to see it done still think it will be done. But the time frame is going to take alarms me. One senior appropriator who's a cardinal uh, told me. Uh, last week that he feels will get done, but it'll take four months to get done. Oh my God. I don't know. If, right. Exactly. That was my response too. Uh, you know, Ukraine has lost another town. Now, how many towns, how, where, where will they be four months from now? I don't think we have four months uh, to get this done. So, no. um, you know, there's a, a lot I can't talk about um, that's going on behind the scenes, but I, I think that um, I am hopeful that the, the Johnson feel the pressure and, and Jeffries has come out publicly saying that there right. are a large number of lawmakers on his side that will protect Johnson from a motion to vacate him if he puts Ukraine on the floor. Right. And we know that will happen. Marjorie Taylor Greene has said that she will do that. Right. So right. and I deep down side knowing Mike Johnson, Mike is not a survivalist. He's not doing this just so we can keep the job. Mike wants to do the right thing. He knows we have to fund Ukraine. I think everybody's just got to figure out how do we get him there? How do we get him to focus on this? I just don't think we can do that until the FY24 bills are done. I, I think anybody who's listening, um, I've never said this before, call and make your voices heard uh, to accelerate doing the right thing, because I think delaying it four months to August, the offensive is at that point, the Russian offensive will be over. And that's what everybody's girding for. The full Russian offensive has not really started yet. Um, and they're going to be a peak force with peak weapons uh, and and come after Ukraine in in uh, a very significant way. So the the worry is not not just Avdivka, but again, uh, kind of a, a, a domino effect. Uh, Dove, I want to pull you in here really quickly because you're the one who's been talking uh, about being innovative about how we go about doing this. We're hearing more talk here and there that there are actually authorities the president can use in order to try to do this. Quickly bring the audience up to speed on what are some of the things that we can start doing and doing immediately 
to try to uh, help uh, the Ukrainians. We'll talk a little bit more about that, and Jim will lead the discussion on what uh, Ursula von der, von der Leyen said about using Russian assets. But how do you how do you see what are things that we can do and do immediately to help these guys out because their their backs are against the wall? Well, the president still has some drawdown authority. That's number one. Um, apparently, there's still some money on the table that simply has not uh, been used. And so they can use that pretty quickly as well. And then the other thing is simply to send uh, equipment to Ukraine and make it up to the uh, uh, to the manufacturers later on. In other words, you know, the, the plan has always been, as Michael said, we actually pay uh, our uh, industry uh, to produce stuff and uh, they produce it for our military and our military ships stuff to the Ukrainians. Well, we could ship it and run down our own stocks and, you know, sort of ship now, pay later. Uh, another possibility is uh, to do the same thing with our European friends. Basically say, go ahead and ship. We'll, we'll then back you up with our stuff and then we'll go back to industry later on. Uh, so that's, that's a real possibility. And I think uh, I suspect it's being contemplated uh, in the administration because you're absolutely right. Uh, the town that the Ukrainians lost wasn't that big of a deal, quite honestly. It, it was virtually empty anyway. Uh, the real issue is uh, the spring offensive. Uh, last year, the idea was the Ukrainians would launch an offensive. This year, the worry is it's going to be the Russians. Right. And so getting the material um, and as Michael says, if we get a supplemental March, April, May, June, um, OK, so our industry has to wait a few months. Well, they would have to wait a few months if there was a year long supplemental as well. And they've already been waiting a few months. So that's not a deal breaker. We could still send materiel to the Ukrainians and then make it up later. Uh, I, I certainly hope that folks uh, are listening to that. And we're hearing a little bit of that coming out of the Pentagon uh, this week. Uh, before we move on, because there's so much more to talk all around the world, uh, really uh, quickly, Michael, uh, give us sort of 30 seconds to a minute about Mitch McConnell's uh, decision, surprised some. Uh, but actually, he's gotten all that he wanted out of the job through unprecedented means, whether or not it was getting a Supreme Court, whether or not it was stalling legislation. Um, I think history is going to look at it as checkered overall, although if you're a Republican partisan, uh, right, I mean, he was the grave master of, of legislation and got an unprecedented Supreme Court installed uh, through means that were also unprecedented. And he's also losing control of his caucus and he's not getting any younger. What's going to be the legacy here, aside from handing, I guess, another Trump administration the the tools, potentially a, a, a dangerous set of tools and, and fewer breaks? I mean, where what does this mean, ultimately? Look, I don't think McConnell did get everything he wants because he does also want Ukraine aid. And I think he's going to do everything he can to push this until the end of the year. Right. Um, he is not going to give up. Uh, but I think he saw the handwriting on the wall, the changes in his conference. But. Look, I mean, he's got, you know, 49 uh, Senate Republicans. I think he's got a problem with really about 12 to 15 of them right now. So I don't see the civil war uh, that the media is portraying. I don't see a, a Trumplican you know, becoming the next uh, the next leader. Um, and 
look, I think it really is the end of an era. And I think you, but the people who are opposed to him want to see a reverse from his Reagan-esque uh, views. And I think, again, he's, it's, uh, he represents a dying era for the Republicans. And if you look at the responses to his departure, I mean, President Biden said a very classy statement that said in part, you know, I'm proud that my friend Mitch McConnell and I have been working together in good faith, even though we had many disagreements and that he and Jill wish Mitch and Elaine the best. Pelosi sent out a very nice statement saying that McConnell should be recognized for his patriotism and decades of service, uh, how we share responsibility to the American people to find common ground wherever possible, how she wishes him the best. Now, contrast to what the Freedom Caucus in the House sent out. And listen you know, carefully to this. Our thoughts are with our Democrat colleagues in the Senate on the retirement of their co-majority leader, Mitch McConnell, the Democratic senator from Ukraine. No need to wait till November. Senate Republicans should immediately elect a Republican minority leader now. Right. I mean, this is the depths that the Republicans are, are starting to sink to. Trump, surprisingly, from what I can tell, has been silent on this. But I think that's also one of the reasons that McConnell is calling it the end, because he could not bring himself to endorse Trump. And Trump, as probably the, as a likely nominee, he could not sustain his position as a majority leader going forward or minority leader going forward if he did not endorse right. Trump. And I give him a lot of credit for that, for not yep. doing it, because. Uh, we've seen a tremendous amount of weakness on Republicans endorsing Trump, even though they didn't want to. So uh, I think, you know, his I think we have to see at the end of the year what his uh, legacy really is going to be. Uh, well, all I would point out is he did lend a lot of legitimacy in 2015 when he did endorse uh, or 2016 when he endorsed Donald Trump. So just saying. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree. But I think a lot of people didn't think it was going to be a, as bad as it was. Alas. Um, every, everything, everything is crisp in hindsight, isn't it? Although there are those who said it was going to be pretty bad. I'll just leave it right there. Uh, Jim, uh, if you're Vladimir Putin, you, you're probably feeling pretty good. Uh, he gave a very energetic and robust speech. Uh, his primary opponent is dead. Uh, protests were muted, uh, even at his funeral. Uh, GOP lawmakers are taking cues uh, from his eater interviews and indeed eating up what his intelligence services uh, are feeding him. His nuclear saber rattling appears to be cracking the alliance. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz won't send the Taurus cruise missile to Ukraine, suggesting that Britain and France uh, are escalating the conflict and even, you know, apparently exposing some British uh, intelligence uh, in the process. Um, NATO members, including Washington's smothered Emmanuel Macron's, I think, thoughtful suggestion that troops may ultimately be need to be sent to Ukraine, making the case, hey, look, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that we're doing that we never would have thought we're doing, including providing cruise missiles uh, to uh, the Ukrainians. Um, good news is the NATO secretary general has noted it's fair for Ukraine to strike Russia uh, as international law allows all sovereign states to protect themselves under attack can do so. Ursula von der Leyen uh, this week uh, suggested that it's time to consider tapping $300 billion uh, in seized Russian assets to rearm and rebuild Ukraine. I want to kind of go around the horn on this. Is Vladimir Putin working? And why is it that years into this, we're still succumbing to his nuclear saber rattling over and over and over again? Well, you know, I I think that's exactly the point that I took away. Uh, you know, Macron started it by by having that press conference and saying that uh that 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 putting troops into Ukraine should not be taken off the table. You know, he 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 alluded to it. He didn't make a big grandstanding statement, but right. but he and I, you know, there's some sympathy to 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 that. I mean, there's uh, you know, depending on how you define sending troops. I mean, I mean, there's there's some variations here, but I think certainly he said that 
to really emphasize how serious he felt the situation was and the links to which Europe should consider going. So you could you could see in his statement um, that uh, he certainly changed from his position of not wanting to uh, not not wanting to humiliate Putin that he was talking about last year. I think that's changed. But certainly the discussion they had in Paris uh, with the European leadership uh, was a uh, more forceful one than they've had in the past. But what he did, though, by saying that is was it had the opposite impact in that immediately some of the major leadership there in, in, in uh, Europe Felt they had to come out and say, well, no, 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 we're not doing this. Don't, no, Putin, no, don't worry, we're not even this. So it exposed a real weakness in uh, in Europe. It didn't show a uh, determination. It didn't show uh, a unity. It didn't show a forcefulness. Instead, he opened up this 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 uh, weakness that came across to Putin, and certainly that made him feel em emboldened. And, and but on top of that. What Putin did, he flipped it back on Europe the next day. He gave his State of the Russia address, and he get, he made one of the most specific and clear warnings about his willingness to use nuclear weapons and telling the West, stay out of my way. He was emboldened to say that because of the weakness that he saw. So he doubled down on it. He said that, my great concern here is that Putin is quite emboldened now based on what he saw over the past couple of days. These past couple of days uh, are probably some of the worst in terms of showing a weakness in Europe and a vulnerability to being scared by the Russians when that nuclear saber is rattled. And Putin has seen this. And my fear is in a couple of years, if we're going to be facing a recapitalized Russian military, and a Putin with the intent to use it to test the alliance by taking a, a swipe at one of the allies, he will be reassured knowing that he has seen this test already, that if he rattles that nuclear saber really loudly, uh, it, will, uh, it, will, it will have a recoil effect in Europe as the European nations, as they did over the past couple of days, that they will recoil and say, no, 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 we're not going to send troops to Ukraine or two years later, we're not going to stop you from taking a swipe at an ally. And so that's my great fear is how how emboldened and full of confidence the past couple of days made Putin feel based on what Macron said and how the allies reacted to it. He sees fear and like a dog that sees fear, he's going to go after it and he's going to make use of it and he's certainly going to tuck this away to be used in a couple of years once he's got Ukraine in the bag and he's looking for another victim. Uh, and I, I would point out, right, that that Washington also kind of poo pooed the idea uh, right uh, right away instead of sort of saying, like, look, there's merit and, you know, we'll 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 uh, get to it. Uh, because, again, I mean, almost every time uh, we, we just, I, I think, end up sort of clutching our pearls uh, for, for lack of an analogy. Uh, Patrick, let me uh, go to you. And I want to kind of go around the horn uh, as well on this. Uh, you know, Michael, I've got a specific question for you and then and then uh, come come to Dove on it. But what what are the, Ch the Chinese, right? I mean, every single thing that happens, I ask you every week on how the Chinese are perceiving this. Uh, if you're Vladimir Putin, things are looking 
really looking your way, especially if American aid isn't going to be arriving in Ukraine till August. Zelensky is absolutely right. This is existential. And Vladimir Putin made it abundantly clear this special military operation is going to succeed. And success means destroying Ukraine. So, you know, he is going to go right to the NATO border if he can. He's going to Lviv. Uh, This isn't just about, you know, or manage to get rid of Zelensky, install a puppet, however he wants to do it. This is is, is sort of long from over. Right. Um, And ultimately, we've said and I think Macron deserves clarity. Either he loses or we lose. This this is a binary choice. And yet we seem still 10 years into this to not understand that. Just give us give us your sense on how all of this was perceived by the Chinese who are building up their nuclear arsenal and looking very carefully about what nuclear rhetoric can and cannot be used. Well, if I'm Xi Jinping, my ally Putin is not losing. Um, He's not necessarily winning the way that, uh, you know, Putin would describe it uh, or that you're just saying that he's going to be able to take all of Ukraine and march into Europe. Um, um, And from a Western perspective, from a U.S. perspective, he's clearly not losing enough and he's winning too much. Um, I think Xi Jinping is worried about uh, the following, uh, that U.S.-led allies uh, and new partners continue to build up their capabilities and to coalesce. And in that sense, Xi Jinping uh, clearly sees the costs of what Putin has done by invading Ukraine in 2022. Uh, Japan's defense spending alone, Japan-Korean cooperation, I could go on, you know, with AUKUS and so on. So all of these are steps that China is feeling the pain um, in part and good part from Putin's aggression. So, um, you know, she's not entirely happy with this. Uh, And that's why she and Putin both want to see American power collapse, weakened at least. Uh, And um, to the extent that Putin is weakening the West and creating fissures, uh, she is applauding that quietly to the extent that she is uh, uh, that Putin's aggression is mobilizing an anti-China coalition. Uh, that is exactly what he doesn't want. So it's going to be very important for the U.S. and our allies to do two things. One, follow through, especially our allies on defense spending, for instance, and the promises. And secondly, uh, avoid uh, avoid isolationism and the populism. You know, whether it's Le Pen coming to France or Trump to the U.S., avoiding these tendencies will determine how she sees this situation next year and the year beyond. Dove, uh, your your sense on uh, all of this, as well as uh, the wisdom of von der Leyen's uh, proposal of tapping uh, the frozen Russian assets. Uh, this is something that was regarded as, let's keep it in escrow, let's use it as leverage, and a democratic Russia could use this. But Ukraine really does have its back up against the wall. There's no sense that even after Navalny's assassination, there's any likelihood that there's going to be a big change, right? Russia allowed the funeral to go ahead, but is monitoring everybody. And almost everybody who's laid flowers or anything else has found themselves losing their jobs, right? I mean, all of these people who are demonstrating are maybe the tip of an iceberg, but the rest of the iceberg, as is the case, unfortunately, in much of Russian history, just wants to keep its head down and manage to have as normal a life as possible, whether they agree or disagree. What what's your sense and how did you perceive this last week uh, and what did you find meritorious and, and maybe what not? Well, uh, I the glass is not necessarily uh, just half empty. There is the half full side. And 
you know, Hungary finally uh, approved Swedish entry. Could not have been happy with that. And remember, Hungary also, maybe reluctantly, but it did agree to 50 million euros going to the to the Ukrainians from the EU. And Putin couldn't have been happy with that. Uh, and if you look at uh, the warming relations, not wonderful, but warming between Turkey and the United States, Putin can't be happy with that either. And even the Macron statement, I mean, look, Putin's been threatening nuclear war for ages. And the truth of the matter is, if he's going to explode a nuclear weapon somehow, somewhere, it's going to kill his soldiers, too. And if anybody remembers the last nuclear accident in the Soviet Union, uh, it, it's going to be Putin. Now, he may not care if he loses hundreds of thousands of people, but he does need them if he wants to conquer Ukraine. So, you know, each time we deter ourselves, and we've talked about this and Jim's talked about it. Um, but, you know, in the 75th anniversary celebrations are going to take place in Washington for NATO's creation. You now have Sweden and Finland both in. The Baltic Sea is now a NATO lake. St. Petersburg's being threatened. If he wants to play those kinds of games, we can play them too. And he knows it because this is a guy who is the closest thing to Joseph Stalin in the last more than half century. <laughs> because Khrushchev and Brezhnev and the two old geezers who were in the middle of that, and certainly uh, Gorbachev, did not behave the way Putin did and does. And so I think that there is more NATO unity now than before. And yes, yeah, Schultz got angry at, at the French, but you know the French and the Germans have spats, but they don't have wars anymore, and they, and they patch it up. And as for the, the assets, uh, I think that's the right thing to do. I think now is the right thing to do it. And quite frankly, if we release those assets to the extent that they're actually there's money there as opposed to real estate or whatever, we could pay our contractors to go and produce. And that solves the problem until we finally get a supplemental. So by all means, reduce, uh, get hold of the assets and not just the ones in Europe, whatever assets we have here. Uh, I, I think that that's a terrific idea and a, and a great uh, workaround. Jim, I'm going to come to you for the last word on this. Uh, and uh, Michael, you're next. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. The Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications are brought to you by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Bell, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. Uh, Michael, uh, just really quickly on the political dynamic, they're increasingly referred to as the Putin caucus uh, up on the hill. The drive to impeach uh, the president uh, was shaped by Russian intelligence, effectively, as is becoming abundantly clear at this point. And yet more and more members are finding common cause with Vladimir Putin, repeating his messaging. And I actually think the situation is much graver because those messages actually get to a giant portion of the American electorate. You can try to gussy them up any way you want, a little bit like Charles Lindbergh, uh, you know, recycling um, Nazi talking points. Uh, unfortunately, all you need is a spokesman. And at, at the time we, you know, war was declared, there were a large number of Americans who were isolationist, if not you know, actively pro-Germany, uh, ultimately. I mean, is is Putin actually winning in Washington in ways that are actually more profound than the intelligentsia realizes, right? Because there, it was dismissal for a while. And anytime you notice a problem, it's it's often 
kind of too late to address it. Are we there? I, I agree with you, right? And I think it's it's not just um, the messages conveyed by our political leaders. It's uh, also from talking heads in the media. I mean, look at Tucker Carlson, right, who uh, just did an interview with Putin for two hours. And uh, not only uh, did the interview, but uh, apparently this broadcast from a Russian supermarket to try to make it look like life is better there than it is here, which, of course, he knows is not. Uh, but the average American d- does not. Uh, and, I, and I think, again, a lot of this is centered on on Trump, right? I mean, Trump, for some reason, admires these autocratic rulers, uh, not just, you know, Putin, but also Xi and uh, Kim Jong-un. Uh, he even, you know, uh, praised Hamas and Hezbollah, you know, after the October 7th attacks about how smart and, and, and ruthless they are. Um, so I think, you know, it's all about this, this cult of Trumpism. If Trump said tomorrow that Putin's a bad guy and we need to counter uh, Putin in Europe, 90% of those people would follow him. And say, yep, you're right. Putin's a bad guy, and and we need we need to we need to counter him, right? I mean, most Americans don't really have a sense of history. They don't understand what we went through with the Cold War. I, I think most members of Congress don't have a really good a sense of history. Uh, so, and and I think the, there's this feeling that it's a, an attack against Trump when you talk about the Russian influence in this town. There is Russian influence. I mean, they they've been trying to interfere with our elections for a long time, and there's nothing wrong with ex- acknowledging that and doing what we can uh, to prevent it. It doesn't necessarily delegitimize. Trump's win in 2016. And I think that's the take that they've got. And they, they've made, they take it personally. Uh, and that's what's driving this. But I think your point is well taken that Putin is winning more uh, than the intelligentsia w- would believe. And, and it's becoming a very big problem uh, among Republicans because there's a big divide. I think you have at least you know, more than half the party here uh, understands what Putin is. Uh, you have you know a quarter of them that are just afraid it will follow. And then you have another quarter who I think don't understand what Putin really is and think he's a good guy and, and misunderstood. Uh, so we really have our work yeah. cut out for us. <laughs> yeah, he's a misunderstood genius. Uh, and I apologize <laughs> for that brief uh, bit of uh, music. I was scrolling, uh, uh, just checking headlines, as I often do as we're having this conversation. And then uh, thanks for uh, auto uh, uh, auto uh, introductory music uh, for things. Um, uh, very uh, quickly, Jim, I want to kind of come back to you uh, on the on the wisdom of, of tapping those funds before we have to go to uh, the Indo-Pacific. Uh, we've got to talk about Israel and what it's up to and then come back around on the American uh, political scene. But, you know, you, you've been at this game also for a long time as everybody on this uh, call without dating anybody. Um, what's what's your sense in the shift in the in the political uh, rhetoric? Uh, but more specifically on using those uh, seized Russian assets and tapping them uh, in order to help uh, Ukraine. I suspect you're going to give your voice, your 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 full endorsement of that idea. Yes, as you know, my full endorsement is what everyone is waiting on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, but I, I'm Jim Townsend and I endorse this message. <laughs> as headlines in the Washington Post, Townsend approves the uh, use of the Russian funds. But no, I, I want to go back to what Dove said, because Dove said that too, and I agree. It's, to me, it's a no-brainer. I'm not quite sure what the holdup is, except maybe it sets a bad precedent, uh, escalation that seems to be. But I, but I think I want to go back to what, and I'll be quick about it, going back to what Dove said about the half glass, glass half emptying, glass half full. He's absolutely right to remind everybody about the, the glass half full. Uh, there is a lot you can line up uh, there. Sweden, Finland, uh, you know, a stronger unity, a, finally a Europe that's beginning to make traction on improving their deterrence, et cetera, et cetera. So that is really critical. What I really want to do, though, is make sure that everyone understands that that there is this uh, self-deterring problem 
that we have seen from the very beginning, and that with the U.S. being self-deterred, Europe as well, and and Dove is right. This isn't new about the uh, the kind of the hints that uh, early on that Putin would drop about uh, nuclear weapons. But I really wanted to highlight this because it really wasn't picked up, and I think it's really critical. This time around, his rhetoric was really meant to scare. If you read what he said, he talked about this nightmare that everyone has in the back of their mind about a strategic nuclear exchange and the termination of life as we know it. I mean, that's that's what he was conjuring up, and he hadn't done that before. And that's a scary thing, I mean, obviously. And so when you couple that with this quick recoil yesterday or day before, from what Macron said about putting in troops into Ukraine, um, then you see how susceptible the West is, including the United States, to nuclear saber rattling. And so my great fear, and I'll end it here, but my great fear is that we will self-deter from protecting an ally who might be at risk after Ukraine with with a, a stronger Russian military and a, and a uh, Putin on the march that we are self-deterred uh, by that nuclear saber, that at the moment of crisis, when the alliance needs to show its teeth and then Article 5, and we need to show that you, you better leave Estonia alone, he rattles that saber and you get a recoil in the West. That's what I greatly fear. And I think that's what Putin would be banking on. Uh, all right. Uh, we uh, have to leave it right there. We're going to go uh, to uh, Patrick because there's a lot of stuff going on in the Indo-Pacific we need uh, to know about. Uh, Australia is one of our closest uh, allies. It's a Five Eyes uh, partner. Uh, and yet uh, we now have the bombshell allegation by uh, Australia's security intelligence organization that a former lawmaker was under uh, Beijing's uh, direct control. What does this mean uh, broadly uh, in the narrative. Um, it's uh, sending reverberations throughout uh, Australian uh, politics, uh, even if it uh, appears unclear whether it's having any impact at all uh, on, on the Chinese. W walk us through what's going on uh, and what does it mean before we get to some of the alliances and partnerships uh, that the Australians are striking regionally and, and some of the uh, uh, Chinese counter rhetoric to that. Well, ASIO is sort of uh, Australia's FBI or MI5, and Michael Burgess, who's a great professional, has been uh, increasingly vociferous about the threat that China has posed to Australian intelligence and security in a very similar way that Christopher Wray, FBI director, has uh, talked about the threat growing year after year after year. The difference here is, as you pointed out, possibly uh, a key official uh, under direct control of China. That's very different from just influence and interference, uh, which has been the bulk of the charges to date. Um, so in the annual assessment issued by uh, the SEO uh, Director General Michael Burgess this week, um, he talked about how the A-team, Australia's basically elite policymakers uh, and officials, have been targeted for espionage and foreign interference more than ever before and one former politician who's now no longer in government has literally sold out the country um, without naming him. And, and uh, immediately opposition politicians and the liberal national parties uh, criticized him for not naming him. Uh, Prime Minister Albanese came to his defense and said, look, in effect, um, we want uh, the country uh, that uh, invaded our uh, security, i.e. China, uh, again, not named specifically, um, to be aware that we broke their code 
but we don't want them to be able to unpack our sources and methods and, and how we did this. That's all reasonable. And that's why the speculation will go on. And indeed, if you, as you, Pago, you and I have both done some quick, you know, searching. And unfortunately, it's a long list of potential candidates of former. Right. It, 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 is, it is a long list, actually. So uh, that's the maybe more frightening thing. And so as we deepen the intelligence cooperation, uh, especially with something like AUKUS, both with submarine technology and with the advanced capabilities, pillar two technologies, you can see uh, intelligence is going to be critical to the trust that's needed in this. In a similar way, but um, Japan, which is still trying to pass legislation to make sure that there are basic confidential security uh, mechanisms and protocols in place for private sector, that's going to be critical for bringing Japan not into the five eyes, but into just closer defense cooperation as we think about Japan, Korea, and, and India as part of our defense industrial base in the future. And uh, talk to us a little bit about the partnerships. We've got Canberra, Manila. Uh, we've got Indonesia uh, and uh, Canberra also uh, talking uh, about an alliance as uh, Indonesia uh, under a, a, a much more uh, publicly dynamic leader, right, or internationally dynamic leader. Uh, it gets ready to sort of assert itself as uh, sort of ideal ground uh, between uh, east and, and and west and north and 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 south. Walk us and and then of course you know another uh, interesting thing Tuvalu uh, that was uh, toying with recognizing uh, shifting its allegiance from Taipei to Beijing decided it was going to stay with Taipei, uh, which can't have gone over well uh, with with Beijing. Walk us through some of these other and, and then of course big big regional exercises also going on. <laughs> so it's been a busy week. Bring us up to speed across that uh, across the spectrum. Indeed. It's almost as though maybe it's not a Eurocentric world after all. Um, uh, <laughs> but that's just my opinion. Um, you can take that with Jim Townsend's endorsement of uh, how to spend the money. I, I think the um, Australian angle, just start here. I mean, first of all, Australia has also still inviting uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi to Australia, presumably to set up a Xi Jinping reciprocal summit in Australia because Albanese visited uh, China late last year. Um, so that relationship continues to thaw, even while the geopolitical competition, for instance, in the, among the Pacific Island countries, heats up. So um, in the Pacific Island uh, countries, uh, it's in Kiribati, uh, in particular, where the police agreement that China has uh, has has rankled, uh, you know, Canberra, uh, including with the Australian uh, minister for the Pacific. Uh, uh, talking about there's no role for Chinese policing. Uh, it should be done by the Pacific Island countries themselves, maybe in tandem uh, you know, with one, with one another, but not with China's help. Um, and meanwhile, um, Tuvalu, the election uh, led to a new prime minister. And so the question was, was that going to be yet one more Pacific Island country picked off diplomatically from Taiwan, uh, like the Solomons and, and Nauru? Uh, uh, recently. And so the answer is no. The prime minister said, no, we're going to stick with with Taiwan. That's a good sign. And yet, if you think about the other two Pacific Island areas uh, that uh, have diplomatic relations with Taiwan, they're really uh, compact of free association countries with the United States. So, you know, Palau uh, in the Marshall Islands and then right. in Micronesia. And, and Congress has still not put forward the money to uh, solidify this 20-year-long deal for these COFAs, these Compacts of Free Association, that provide the critical middle ground geography that separate uh, you know, Guam, 
the Marianas, Wake Island, Hawaii, from the Pacific Island countries in Australia and New Zealand. That's critical terrain for military competition with China, and we're throwing it away by not funding these long-term uh, long deals to keep them together. China's also, of course, just about to begin their so-called two sessions. These are two major political bodies um, that meet uh, concurrently every year at this time, including the People's uh, Congress. And uh, last year, um, around the time of these two sessions, Xi Jinping made four or more speeches where he really hardened the line about Chinese military competition, technological competition. There's a lot of speculation right now about will he stimulate the economy? And so far, nobody has seen that uh, really materializing. So they're, they're somewhat despondent that he's not going to fix the economy. He wants security and policy and political control first. He is also uh, apparently hardening the line on Taiwan a little more. So we see in the working group meetings that are preparing for the two sessions, um, throwing out soft language and then talking about we need we Chinese need to combat Taiwan independence more than ever. So you could you can kind of get an inkling as you think ahead toward the the, the May inauguration and beyond of the Lai government that's coming into power. Um, you mentioned Indonesia. We'll have lots of time to talk about Subianto Prabowo, uh, who will be inaugurated one October. Um, it, it, a lot of questions about which direction he'll go in, and the answer is probably all, all directions. Um, but uh, he will definitely be more assertive internationally. Finally, the military exercises. Cobra Gold kicked off this week. Uh, it goes through March 7th. This started as a bilateral U.S. time, maritime exercise, has long since become a multilateral exercise. 30 countries involved, more than 9,000 troops. The, the reason it's important this year is because there's a new prime minister. Uh, the prior years are over ever since the 2014 coup. Really, the frost in U.S.-Thai relations really hurt our sort of opportunity and influence. China gained influence. Now we're going to have this military exercise end with a visit by uh, Secretary Raimondo, Commerce Secretary, leading a fact-finding trip of the President's Economic Council. It's an advisory board, to be sure, but it's only going to one country. It's going to Thailand. Uh, and it just kind of sort of punctuates that there's a new opportunity with our longstanding ally, Thailand, that has really drifted off toward China in the recent years. And I think that's a, a good thing to watch. And then meanwhile, next week begins the major U.S.-South Korean exercises, Freedom Shield. And the reason that's important this year is because they're going to be exercising so many different potential nuclear options. That is, namely, how to defend and deter North Korean nuclear options. And this rolls us right back to the saber rattling out of Putin, uh, but the saber rattling, saber rattling out of uh, Kim Jong Un as well. Uh, you know, how do we stand up to this? How do we not uh, show that we are rattled by their rhetoric, uh, which is designed for clear, strategically uh, political reasons mostly? But if there's an opening in the future or different scenarios, it's not off the table either. So we have to be we have to be stronger on the deterrence uh, and exercises like. Uh, the one uh, Freedom Shield that's going to happen between 4 and 14 March will help strengthen U.S. and Korean extended deterrence and readiness. Uh, and uh, I should point out uh, that uh, you still endorse the idea of supporting Ukraine as a great way to deter uh, Russia, even though you're an ape, you know, that is very consistent with uh, Dr. Cronin's uh, global uh, strategic worldview. Um, we've got a couple of minutes uh, left. Michael wants to talk about politics, but we can't end the week without getting Dove's take. 
uh, on uh, what's going on in Gaza. Another very uh, tough week. We've surpassed uh, 30,000, at least 30,000 uh, casualties. Um, you know, Israel is restricting aid uh, to Gaza, uh, having of aid uh, in uh, February. Obviously, it's trying to take the fight to uh, try to get Hamas leaders that it sees uh, are in Rafah. Bibi Netanyahu has said the fight is weeks away from ending, if not months. Uh, that's kind of a tough message for the people who are really caught in the crossfire uh, as the fatality, you know, they've been driven to that corner of the country as fatality rates increase. Israel, unfortunately, has been stepping up operations in the West Bank, even as Palestinian leaders have agreed in what is a major win, I think, for the Biden administration to step down and make room for a new generation. And on top of that, uh, 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 Israel is saying that it is about to launch uh, a major offensive uh, in the north, uh, uh, which uh, has a lot of people a little bit uh, concerned. So, Dove, where, where are we going in this? This is all very costly. Uh, the sense is, you know, we can sort of break everything uh, with support of our big brother, who's uh, covering many of the costs or at least supplying some of the weapons for this or have bought them. And now the message is and everybody else is going to have to clean up this mess and we're not going to go for a two state solution. So you know, where 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 are we going on this? Obviously, the president is facing political pressures uh, within, you know, abstention movement, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, in, in Michigan, which is an important state. Where where are we going? Is Israel opening up a second front? I mean, it's now got three sort of hot fronts that it's actually stoking uh, in, in, in some, in some respects for strategic reasons of its own, right? Where, where are we? And is there any way of changing this, this vector? Okay. Well, let me start with something uh, slightly different first. Uh, and it's really going to pick up on, uh, on Asia where Patrick left off. First of all, uh, he said so much and covered so much, uh, but there's one other thing that happened and that's the Australian government is now advocating more than doubling the number of surface warships for the Navy, which on top of the AUKUS deal is is certainly uh, going to enhance the deterrent in that part of the world. But also in Asia, it turns out that just prior to the beginning of the war with Hamas, Indonesia was in very serious talks with Israel about opening uh, trade offices on the way toward essentially recognition. Uh, And even though this war has happened, the Indonesians have not said we're not going to do it. They've simply put it in abeyance. And uh, although this was started by uh, the the current president, uh, Widodo Jokowi, it, it, it's it looks like that Prabowo, the new president, who's always been uh, in favor of some relationship with Israel, is ready to pick that up. So that's kind of interesting. Now, on the issue that you've raised, a couple of things happened. First, there was this major issue uh, when they dropped food and there was a, a rush to the food and people and bull, uh, shots were fired and people uh, panicked and, you know, it was just a complete mess. People died. The uh, Palestinians said that the Israelis were shooting at the, uh, rather Hamas said that the, the Israelis were shooting at the people trying to get food. The Israelis said, no, they were shooting in a different direction. The Security Council wanted to condemn Israel. Once again, the United States vetoed. So for the time being, at least, we're still protecting them in the UN. Uh, and uh, we're 
and by doing so, of course, we convince Netanyahu that he can get away with anything. That is not really the case anymore. The sentiment is really growing that uh, something has to be done about the hostages. There are warring, literally warring poles in Israel. The pro-right pollsters say that the overwhelming majority of Israelis just want to continue to fight the war. The pro-left pollsters say, oh, no, 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 no. There's a majority that cares more about the hostages. But in the war cabinet itself, they're bitterly divided. Uh, Benny Gantz, the uh, former chief of staff and former deputy prime minister who had broken with Netanyahu um, and was cheated out of the prime ministership, quite frankly, is on the verge of bailing out. And um, <clears throat> and there's a whole other fight that arose out of this war, which is the Israeli military recognizes it just doesn't have enough people. And so uh, first I'll talk about that in the context of a war with, in Lebanon. Yes, the rhetoric is getting worse, but remember also the Israelis, if they're really having a problem with people, I don't know how they manage those all those wars at the same time. It's a, it's a mini version of our problem that we have to have troops and capabilities around the world and we're kind of short if we have to fight more than one war simultaneously. They've got the same problem in a mini version. There's also the issue of Iran. Iran has told its people to back off in Iraq and Syria. I don't know that Iran wants to uh, tangle with the Israelis over Hezbollah because they don't. The Iranians don't know that the Israelis, unlike the United States, will be reluctant to go after them. The Israelis aren't as worried about that. And they'll go after the Iranians in all kinds of ways as they have up to now anyway. Um, the, the shortage of people has also meant that there's a huge debate now in Israel as to who exactly should get drafted. Because there, there is a proposal on the floor that the uh, they should extend the service life of reservists. And the reservists, they're tired. They need to get back to work. The economy needs to get back on its feet. Um, and everyone is saying, well, wait a minute. You've got all these ultra-Orthodox. There's over 60,000 of them that haven't been drafted. Why not draft them? And Gantz and the military leadership inside the military and in the war cabinet, supported by the opposition leader Lapid, are saying this cannot go on any longer. And the re religious parties are saying, wait a minute, Netanyahu, you give in to those folks. We're walking out of the government. So now he's in a corner. He's got to satisfy his right wing crazies. But now he's under pressure from the religious. And I don't know how he actually can pull that one off. Yes, he's been able to get one rabbit out of a hat all the time. It's got to get two of them, and that's a little bit harder. Uh, we will uh, see. Michael, you've got, uh, unfortunately, we've got gone long on the program, and that's my fault. Michael, you get a minute for, uh, right, we're heading into Super Tuesday. What do we got to be bearing in mind uh, as we do it? And then we're going to wrap. Go ahead. Okay. Well, first, uh, Michigan primary uh, was Tuesday. Uh, Biden won with 81% of the vote. The significant thing there was a 13% voted for uncommitted. That was mostly young voters. Arab Americans turned out about 100,000 votes uh, and in favor of uncommitted to protest Biden's handling of the war. So that continues to be a problem for him. Uh, even though Nikki Haley lost to Trump, uh, she still got 27% of the vote. It's not enough to win, but it's enough to show that a sizable chunk of Republicans are, are never going to be on board with Trump. And now with the Alabama uh, Supreme Court decision uh, ruling that embryos are children and now some IVF, IVF clinics in the state uh, dropping their fertility work, this has Republicans scrambling to try and take out a, a position on this procedure, which will also hurt them at the polls 
uh, in November. Uh, you know, Super Tuesday, we have 15 uh, states. I think there's a, a, I think obviously we expect Trump to win them and Biden to win them, but the focus will be on the congressional primaries. There's a lot of tough primaries where you have some moderate Republicans up against some, uh, I wouldn't even say conservative anymore, far right-wing Republicans, and that could further alter the dynamics of the House. So there's some races we really got to pay attention to, and we'll see uh, what they look like on Wednesday morning. And the uh, Supreme Court did end up helping uh, Trump, right, by delaying the case. Both Eileen Cannon and the Supreme Court have sort of helped, right, because a lot of Republicans have said that if he gets in, if he gets convicted, that would change my view. And so the high court, as well as uh, a key federal court, have, have both delayed things enough that they're unlikely to have a concluded trial by the election, which was the original plan. Well, I know you and I disagree on this, but uh, I, I, I still think the Supreme Court will rule that Trump does not have immunity. And I think that while some of these cases may not make it in time for election, that there are some that will start as early as June or July, and those could be completed in time for the election. So we'll just have to see. Uh, uh, ho hopefully. Uh, Dove, 10 seconds. Marine Corps passed its audit. Yay, it can be done. Discuss 10 seconds, and then we got to end it. That's about all it's worth. It's been more than 30 years since Congress passed legislation asking for an audit. And finally, one service has done it, which means that there are now four others that still have not. And uh, I think people don't understand that what an audit really does is it tells you if there is something wrong with the system where people can be fraudulent. And by and large, uh, over the years, uh, there hasn't been much fraud, but it's not been perfect. And, on um, you know, the public, which is being asked to support 800 billion or more in defense, uh, doesn't understand why there hasn't been a clean audit. There are all kinds of good reasons. But the bottom line is, when I was comptroller, I inherited this problem. And here we are today, all these years later. And finally, finally, the smallest service. Remember that, too. The smallest service got a clean audit. The bigger ones. Well, they're not the smallest anymore. Space forces. But the, the bigger ones still have not. And that is not a good public image. Hope springs eternal. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks very much to the audience uh, for sticking with us for a slightly longer program this week. Uh, hope you all have uh, a great weekend, a great week. We'll look forward to having the panel back on again next week and hope everybody has a great weekend. We'll be back again on Sunday for the Business Roundtable. Until then, have a great weekend.